Hello, I'm Dan Rather, and I'm here with the administrator of the DEA, Mr. Robert Patterson. Let's talk about the drug take-back day. When is it? What is it? Why is it? So, sir, I, I greatly appreciate your time and, and your interest in this topic. Uh, it's critically important to us, and, you know, for the next brief period of time, we'll have multiple discussions on why this is so important. But most important thing we can talk about is Take Back Day for DEA and, and for our communities across this country. It's on April 28th this year. Um, uh, the key and critical pieces is to get medications that we all get in, in our various ailments as we go through life that gather up in those uh, closets in our bathrooms that ultimately end up becoming a huge source of diversion where they're either taken by others uh, or misused by family members or loved ones that come across them. So it's a critically important program to us, um, and it's a huge cornerstone piece of what we're trying to do in battling the ongoing opioid crisis. Well, I think a lot of people are unaware of it, which is one reason we're talking today. And I want to make clear what it is. When you say uh, take-back day, we're talking primarily about prescription drugs? That's correct. Prescription drugs that, like I said, you've gotten at some point, you know, we've all done it, where we've gotten prescriptions that we either haven't finished or used. Um, there's some amazing studies out there that talk about uh, the AMA came out with one in 2017 that folks that have gotten opioids, in particular opioid uh, pain medication for uh, acute pain after surgery, that between 40 and 70 percent of that doesn't get used, uh, ends up in someone's medicine cabinet, and then at some point either gets diverted or not disposed of properly. I mean, the, the key well, here is... I certainly is, want to talk to you about the opioid uh, epidemic, which is part of the core of why this is being done. Saturday, April 28th. And what is it you want people to do? So if, if you have medications in your house uh, that you want to dispose of and, and can come out to the locations, we have a website, uh, deatakeback.com. You can go on, you can punch in your zip code, uh, and it'll give you the, the local site uh, closest to your residence or, or business, whatever it may be, that you can take these medications back and dispose of them uh, in an anonymous way. We're not looking to talk to people. We have a host of folks that are at these sites that can answer, in a lot of cases, questions that you may have. Um, but again, it's the, the critical desire to try and get these prescriptions disposed of properly and not allow them to sit around in people's homes. It's anonymous. Because yes. I can imagine someone listening to this saying, ah, if I talk to someone at that drop site, the next thing, next thing I know, a DEA is going to be at my door. No, sir. And, and our hopes are is to have this is a, a good, once again, a good... Uh, interaction between the community and law enforcement partners. And I, I can also, in my mind's eye and ear, hear someone saying, well, take back drugs, take back prescription drugs. Surely there aren't that many around and it's not that big a deal. So it's actually an enormous problem. And again, going back to the studies that we've seen, you know, and, and frankly, forget the studies. In our own personal habits, like I said, we've all had this reoccur time and time again, which is you get it, you get a 30-day supply of medication, you go and you take, you know, five or six days until you feel better, and then you leave that bottle in the medicine cabinet, one, because it's expensive, and maybe you want to use it at a different time, um, which is not necessarily the way you should be using that medicine. Um, but the reality is, is that I, I think that's probably a pretty common instance. 
and, and truly what we see and the message that we're trying to get out there is those pills sitting in those cabinets find their way into the hands of a lot of people that are taking them in a way that are not necessarily the intention of when they were first prescribed. Primarily because I knew I'd be doing this interview, I took a look at my own medicine cabinet. First of all, I was surprised at how many prescription drugs were still there. Some of them, and I'm embarrassed to tell you how old some of them were, but I said to myself, I should clean out this cabinet. If we're going to talk, I'm going to talk to the head of DEA about this, I should clean out my own cabinet. But it went through my mind, you know, I might need this sometime down the line. What do you say to someone who may be thinking that same thing? Well, I mean, I think that's human nature, right, where people stockpile things for that, that rainy day in the future. Uh, my honest opinion is is that, you know, the, the best course of action is to clean them out, and then that day when it comes when you have some type of pain or ailment, you go back and see your doctor again, and if that's the right course that you take, you'll get another prescription. Let's talk about the danger of not cleaning out your medicine cabinet, not taking back prescription drugs, whether they've been there a long time or, or not. What are the dangers? Well, again, the dangers are, is, you know, you have loved ones in your houses. Uh, you know, the, the sad stories that we hear over and over again are, you know, someone in the family has gotten medication and either becomes addicted on their own or other family members ultimately end up with that same medication and being misused by a different family member. And, and I hear those stories all the time. I, I stopped, uh, you know, a while back talking about the grand numbers of fatal overdoses in this country because um, I think, quite frankly, the better way to talk to the American public is to have them hear the personal stories. I think, unfortunately, in, in our country, when you hear specific numbers, at some point you become desensitized to them. And I think, frankly, as I've gone around this country, as I've gone to a number of events now at the White House where they have victims of, of fatal overdoses, and traditionally it's people's kids. Uh, and when I say kids, you know, I mean teens and into their 20s. A lot of these stories all start in the same place, and it is one of the parents or one of the you know, grandparents in the house had prescriptions, and then ultimately they ended up with the kids who then experimented with them. Let me follow up on that because it's one of the ways I wanted you to go, quite honestly. That how often does this happen, that you have a parent or grandparent has some of this stuff in the medicine cabinet, maybe it's been there a long time, and they're saying to themselves, my child or my teenager or my son or daughter is in their early 20s, they're not going to be fooling around in my medicine cabinet. What's been your experience? It is a reoccurring and almost always tragic ending to these stories. Um, it's that true belief that, you know, it won't happen to me, it won't be a problem. Uh, and like I said, I, I hear that same theme over and over again. And so that, you know, that, that is the ultimate dilemma, right? You know, you, you get it, you take it responsibly. And like I said, there are a number of people that take these opioid prescriptions and become addicted themselves. Um, and I think that's, that's an issue. There's a, a grander issue that we have to deal with in this country on opioid prescriptions. Seems to me that Take Back Day, Saturday, April 28th, a few days before or maybe on that day might be a good time for parents to talk to their children, even their young adults, grandparents to talk to theirs. Outline for me what that conversation ought to be in, in trying to educate younger ones, what the dangers are, how they should address them. 
Whether it's take back day, it's a great time to be reminded. It's, you know, it's the change of the clock when you're supposed to change those batteries and your smoke detectors. It's the same, same premise, right? Don't wait for a take back day to have these conversations with your kids. Uh, I'm fortunate. I have the two kids that I think that I've probably never really sat down and had the conversation with, but they've seen their dads work through the years and know how I feel about it. Some kids don't have that same advantage. Uh, you know, growing up, you know, I grew up in an area that had been ravaged by heroin as well. Um, so it's been around me my whole life. I've seen it. I think when you look at a lot of these communities, you know, you have kids in school that, that don't have those same impacts around them. They don't understand the devastation that comes from any type of drug abuse. Um, if take back is that the, the, the time where you finally feel right to have that conversation, then you should. Um, but I think it can happen at any day. And, and look, you have to have an honest conversation about the ramifications of behavior. You know, it's no different than alcohol. You know, drugs fits all in that same, same topic. You know, unfortunately, in today's world, we also have to talk about social media and all the other things. These ramifications that our kids, you know, and frankly, it's, it's far younger than high school, that you have to be aware of and involved in and, and those decisions that they make even at that young age can have an impact throughout the rest of their life or like I said could be a life-ending decision and those are or those are the the gut-wrenching stories and I you know as I said when I've sat down and talked to parents or grandparents of people that said I never saw it they all have the same thing which is I wish we had talked about it and I think those are the conversations. And, and there's no right or wrong way to have that conversation. You know your kids, or I know my parents, better than anybody else does. And that's how you have to start those conversations. And you know what? We all fumble through on a lot of conversations in life, right, with a spouse, with, with kids, anything. There's not a wrong way to have a conversation. But what you have to do is be willing to talk about it. Well, I'll help somebody listening in out with the language. First of all, you said... Really, there's no age too early to start it. We're talking about even kindergarten, first grade, second grade. But give me a, a brief sample conversation. So, I mean, if you're having, let's say you're having a conversation about prescription pills, you know, I mean, if, if you go into, and when we do demand reduction speeches, most kids feel that, hey, pills that have been provided by a doctor in a pharmacy have to be fine. Um, you know, a conversation that you can have with your kids, and, and I think that age is probably appropriate. You know, your, your grade school kids, the prescriptions that are written for a person or for that person. Um, and you have to be clear and, and deliver those messages. As to, to, although that there are doctors that prescribe these things, that, you know, there's all kinds of things that go along with it. So if, if your name's not on that bottle, then that's not a prescription you should be taking. Frankly, for the parents, the parents have to recognize that that medicine cabinet that's sitting in their, you know, in their bathroom, unlocked, is is an, a tempting place, especially for you know middle school and high school kids to go to to take medications from, and I think those are conversations that have to come in in this same space. Um, but I think look, even whether it's licit drugs or illicit drugs or alcohol or any of these things. You know, the importance is to sit down and, and talk about the fact that all of these have ramifications. Um, you know, gone are the days, and it's unfortunate, you know, people make fun of the, the just say no campaign. But it caught you, and we had a generation that really paid attention to that. Um, and I'm not sure that that would catch the same attention that it did back then. 
but we have a generation, and there's a host of reasons why I think this has happened, that feels that you know, drugs are, are not necessarily a, a big, big problem. And in treatment space, you know, we talk about treatment all the time. I think one of the concerns is that treatment in a lot of these are amazingly hard. And I don't think kids, you know, high school age kids, recognize that you're going to have a treatment issue if you become addicted for the rest of your life. And, and when you talk to and when you listen to these kids, and, and again, some of these websites that are out there, the FBI did a great movie, uh, Chasing the Dragon, that they brought DEA in and, and we went out and premiered it together. You know, you listen to the stories of people that have essentially, and I won't say beat the addiction, um, but are being treated, and they'll tell you that this is not a place to be. And, and these are the conversations you have to have. I mean, you have to understand uh, not just the ramifications of what you do, but understand the science of addiction. In the terms of, of having a conversation about opioids, we have a website, operationprevention.com. You can go onto that site, and essentially there are tools there to help you talk to your kids things that you should be looking for, right? Other, other keys that, that you, know, you can pay attention to in this space. It occurs to me, and correct me if I'm wrong, that so much attention was rightfully paid to drugs like heroin, cocaine, crack, all of that, that there's some danger that particularly young people, but including people of all ages, they say, I understand the problem with drugs. I'm not touching that stuff. Or I touched it when I was young and I finally, all of that. My point is that it seems to me there's still not the awareness. Now we're in a new millennium. We're in a whole new century, if you will. And prescription drugs, which people didn't even think about as being all that addictive before maybe late 90s, early 2000. How big a problem is that to say, look, it's all part of the same, but it's not good enough just to have your kids and have you understand that illicit drugs can be addictive. These prescription, prescription drugs, in some cases, are every bit as addictive or even more so. And I'd go to your second part, which is even more so. I think, look, again, in, in talking to people that have struggled with addiction and, and everybody, you could take an opioid and have no problem. I could take an opioid and have a problem relatively quickly. Right, and and that's the the science of how addiction works. Um, everybody's a little bit different, and I think the the key piece of this is you have to recognize how amazingly addictive the illicit opioid prescriptions can be, and like I said, the tolerance and, and how that impacts each individual varies from person to person, um, which is the reason why when you talk about especially college age kids, you know, like I said, where they've all become doctors and can medicate each other. You know, there, there's a host of factors into the, the dosage units and everything else that, that goes into play. You know, if I'm a 300-pound person and you're a 100-pound female, it probably shouldn't be the same dose uh, of medication that, that one may get to the other. And, and that's, that's the key here. This, this gets you back to that prescriptions are, if not dangerous, maybe even more so than illicit drugs that, that people experiment with. But we're not talking, when we talk about take-back day, we're not talking about just opioid. Correct. It's it's all medications that you have. So we're indiscriminate, and the the this will be the, our fifteenth take back day in the last seven years or eight years. So since twenty thousand or two thousand ten, um, we've taken back 
more than 9 million pounds wow. of prescriptions. Um, now, granted, some of that may be old aspirin and other things that people throw in there, um, but the key to this is, one, the proper disposal, which is we incinerate everything that comes in as opposed to, you know, people that unfortunately still, you know, think that flushing stuff down the toilet is the right way to dispose of medicine. That all has ramifications in the water sources and everything else. So that's why we want to take this back, dispose of it properly um, as we move forward. Well, let's talk about that because there is a temptation. Certainly, you say, well, okay, I'll clean out my medicine cabinet, but I'm not going to take this stuff down to something. I'll just put it in the garbage can or maybe just flush it down the toilet. What's wrong with that? Well, certainly, I think flushing it down the toilet is probably the least preferable way. Um, you know, look, we've always been up front and told people, and I think it's on a, a number of agencies' websites, if you have a true problem, and that's the safest way and quickest way you need to dispose it of. You have a loved one that's abusing it and, and you feel that that's the safest way to dispose of it is an alternative. It's certainly not the preferred method. I know our site will direct you to other, uh, you know, CDC or, or NIDA sites to talk about how to properly dispose of it. There are ways to grind it up, uh, mix it in with other trash where it dilutes it and, and you can dispose of it that way. Although, again, that's not necessarily the preferred method. And let's repeat the website location for folks who are listening. Uh, DEATakeback.com. Now, what about the option of just putting it all together and put it in a garbage can? It's the same thing. You want to be able to destroy it, obviously, uh, to the point where that if someone were to go through your garbage and, and find it or, you know, obviously that's going into a landfill scenario. Not, again, the perfect way of, of disposing of any medications, but there are methods that you can do to dilute that drug so it couldn't provide harm to other people. I suspect this next question is going to bring a smile to your face, and if so, I'll register it with our listeners. But if I'm saying to myself, okay, the head of the DEA is making some sense here, so I'll go down on uh, Saturday, April 28th, but I'm carrying these drugs in a bag with me, but if a cop stops me or some undercover detective stops me, I'm caught with opioids, and I'm giving him, quote, a lame excuse, oh, I'm on my way to the take-back place. Well, I think the good day is on April 28th, that's where you're headed to is the local police station or the local drop-off site. I think you'll probably be all right with that. I think that's a good, valid excuse. Now, if it's April 29th and you're driving around with a load of prescriptions in your car, it may be a different story to have. Well, that's a point worth uh, making because I, I do know people that have carried their prescription drugs with them when they're driving down to the grocery store or driving to grandmother's place. Is that against the law? Well, I mean, they, they need to be your prescriptions. Obviously, if they're your prescriptions, it's not illegal to have them. If you're driving around in a car with a bunch of bottles and, and ultimately their prescriptions not under your name or people that don't exist, that can be obviously against the law. I want to go back to an answer you gave a few minutes ago. We're making this conversation as much as we can about the uh, awareness of how to get rid of these prescription drugs. But you said it's been your experience not to talk too much about facts and figures of the, for example, opiate crisis. Take me through that in a little more detail. I'm interested in that. So, look, if we, if we go back and, you know, the unfortunate thing is if you look at two things. One is the, the change of prescribing in this country back to the, you know, early 2000s uh, where opioids became, you know, a pain management fix 
for, for so many prescribers out there. They were marketed heavily, uh, kind of as the cure. You, you see now a host of studies that are coming out. The VA just did one that said in a blind study uh, that opioid versus non-opioid pain relievers essentially couldn't, you know, for acute pain, uh, you know, knee, knee aches, back aches, ultimately had the same impact. Um, but we became very reliant in this country as, as a prescribing population of producing or, well, or giving opioids. Doctors would uh, prescribe it because it was new and it was very effective. Right. Well, it's not necessarily new. It's been around for a long time. But, you know, the belief was is that the harm that could be caused by it wasn't necessarily, you know, the, the, big, the big concern to the doctors at the time. And I think there has been a huge awareness. And, and look, having these conversations is critical. Um, there is a huge awareness now, and you see a lot of groups. The, the American Dental Association just came out and endorsed a seven-day initial prescription uh, for uh, acute pain, once again, I guess, related to the dental-type dental, dental type work. You have a lot of states that get tremendous credit for legislatively fixing the same thing, right? So the, the goal is, and it, it really all leads into this take-back effort, Prescribing, if you're prescribing for pain for five or seven days as opposed to 30, you use that five days worth of medicine. If you need to get more, then you go get more. Um, and I think that's, that is a, a healthy trade-off for our public in this problem um, because I think doing that removes all of this additional medication that sits out in our various cabinets. Well, it's obvious, but one of those things, although it's obvious, not enough people may think about it. Let's just take a hypothetical case. You go to a dentist. He says, you're likely to have some pain, so let me write you a prescription. It's unlikely that pain's going to last for 30 days. You'll go back to the dentist if it, before that 30-day period is up. But your point is that this is a step forward. Say, well, write a prescription for six or seven days, five or seven days, and if you need more, then the doctor will prescribe more. Absolutely. No, and look, this is the delicate balance. The DEA isn't and, and shouldn't be in the, the doctor-patient relationship of prescribing activity. Um, everybody handles pain differently in their lives, and I think the reality is here is that when you hear the staggering numbers of, of prescriptions that are out there that don't get used, that bends right into the problem of where we're getting, and that is the misuse of leftover prescriptions. You know, in that same uh, American uh, Medical Association study I talked about, less than 9% of folks in that study talked about actually getting rid of the extra pills they had, which meant, you know, 90-plus percent of the people maintained all of that medicine in their homes. Well, for emphasis, again, I want to go over, we're not just talking about opioids all. That's a, a huge national problem. As I agree with you, I think most people are at least vaguely aware of that at the moment. But when we talk about take-back day, we're talking about going in all your prescription drugs. That's correct. A any prescriptions you have, whether they're 20 years old or 2 years old, if you're not going to take them, and especially if they're expired, bring, bring them in. So it doesn't matter if they're opioids or not. My point is, I can imagine some people hearing this saying, well, I'll go through my cabinet and see if I have, have any opioids. That's not the point. Clean, it's clean your cabinets day out is really the way to look at it, right? And, and we're willing to take all of that medication in and dispose of it properly for you. Well, let's take a moment and get some definitions. At least an offhand definition of an opioid is what? It's a pill essentially, um, again, the best way to, to the layman's term, uh, 
will, will calm you down. It's not a stimulant, right? Uh, it, is, it is essentially a relaxing and good feeling for those that take it. Um, depending on your tolerance for those pills, uh, at some point, and we deal a lot with talking to the healthcare professionals on this, it comes less about getting that feeling and much more about not being sick. So as the addiction starts to take hold of, of folks in this space, um, the problem really becomes is you're not doing it to get that euphoric feeling anymore. You're essentially doing it to try and get through every given day. And you hear those stories over and over again. The other problem in the opioid addiction course is it is a lifelong issue that you'll deal with. Um, so treatment is very hard in this space. I mean, you know, we work hard with treatment partners to ensure that people are trying to get what they want. You know, part of the struggle has been is that we also see diversion similar to in the illicit market, you know, with, with opioids in this field as well on the treatment side. So you're replacing one opioid with another, and now that's being diverted as well in the course of trying to get treatment. The easiest way to describe fentanyl for the general public if you went and got your coffee this morning and you had one packet of sugar, which is generally about four grams, that four-gram packet, if it was fentanyl, contains 1,000 lethal doses of a product. And that's why this is such a struggle. So if you can picture all the mail and everything, the logistics that come in from China into the United States and us trying to find this in a consolidated effort, it is a struggle for us across the board to try and get a hand of this. Again, I want to emphasize that I want to keep our focus as much as possible on awareness, uh, the, not the enforcement so much. But I think a lot of people might be interested in this. I want to go back to what you said before, that when we had, say, the great crack epidemic of the 1980s, you're talking at that time about what you call an illicit drug, which is to say it wasn't prescribed for anybody, and it was a crime to uh, deal in it. Uh, but what's different here in the 21st century, the emphasis has been the problem has exploded with prescription drugs, which is the reason we need this take-back day. That's correct. So the licit market essentially drives both uh, the, the licit, right, the, the prescription abuse and, and the issues that come along with that, and has fueled, again, that piece for the illicit world to come in and fill the void from, you know, ultimately the prescription pills. And, and one of the other things that I'd like to talk about for just a second is the true nature of, of one of the problems we see here is counterfeiting pills. So you now believe, you know, that you're getting Oxycontin at a, at a reduced rate or hydrocodone at a reduced rate, and, you know, you feel like, hey, I'm getting a good deal on this, and ultimately they're counterfeit pills. The, the stories that we hear in this space uh, and there's some very public stories that are out there, you know, kids on college campuses that believe they're getting a Xanax. And it's ultimately a counterfeit pill that's filled with nothing more than binder and fentanyl. Um, but they're made to look exactly like that pill that you got from the doctor, you know, two months prior to it, and, and you're still, you know, under the belief that that's what you have. And th this is another area that I think is highly problematic for our population. Well, you mentioned and spoke about the DEA as an educational uh, part of our government. And I have in mind, I suspect that when you say DEA, most people get a mental image of a uniformed or perhaps undercover DEA agent operating somewhere along our long border with Mexico or perhaps undercover in Mexico. Very dangerous uh, action-filled kind of image, the DEA. 
But I'm interested in pursuing this educational part of it, uh, as you view it, uh, and how it fits into Take Back Day. So, so DEA has a couple different components to it. Uh, we obviously have our enforcement arm, right, the 1811 agent population. That is probably what you described, right, out doing criminal investigations, not just in this country but throughout the world uh, with our, you know, federal partners here and all our counterparts in the foreign arena. Um, we also have diversion uh, uh, employees that essentially deal with the licit market, right? So they're they're charged with um, doing cyclical work, looking at the industry, trying to find, unfortunately, where you know either doctors or pharmacies are doing wrong, um, and they work very hard at that. Both of those groups, again, have this natural spot of being able to educate their populations. And, and I'll give you a great example. I mean, and, it, and this all ties into the same issue of take back. But the diversion side of our house spent the last year going through the 50 states hosting educational awareness for physicians, pharmacies, others, all free of charge, to explain the problems as we see them as an enforcement agency and their role of trying to help us. I mean, you have in DEA 1,500 people that work under our diversion uh, control, about 900, 700 to, 700 to about 750 of those people essentially are there to do the investigative work. That's to patrol 1.73 million registrants in this country, meaning people that have the ability to, to, to move or dispense licit narcotics. Um, so the reality is that's a daunting task, and we need the industry to understand their role as a regulated group to ensure their compliance with what we're doing. I mean, the, the tiny fraction, and it's, I'm sure, far less than 1% of doctors and pharmacies that look to essentially profit from doing something wrong are the ones that we have to go over and, and or go after and, and figure out how to deal with. Um, because at some point, just like in every other illicit market, you have a, a market for illicit prescriptions. So there are people that find ways to abuse this and go out. That educational piece with the industry is critically important. That educational piece with the public is critically important with our state and local counterparts, with the state attorneys generals um, out there to show and make sure they understand what we see and how it's happening. And, and one of the things I think we've all gotten very good at is trying to figure out how to work in the public-private space as well, recognizing that this can't be solved by government. The, the one, I guess if you want to call it a benefit of, of kind of this ongoing catastrophe we've had, you have all of your agencies. So your healthcare industry agencies, so, you know, NIDA, SAMHSA, all these other, everybody is working now in this space trying to come up with a solution, you know, under this administration, which I think is, is critically important. How do you reach the younger population, population 18 to 24? Many of them no longer living at home, many of them going to college. So when you talk about Take Back Day, April 28th, Saturday, April 28th. Uh, quite frankly, I have some doubt that your average college student is going to go through their medicine cabinet or their purse or their pack and look for prescription drugs that they'll, they'll take back. Are you worried about that? I, I think, look, that is probably, for me, one of the most problematic ages because if you talk about a group that not only may hold that, whether it's because of a cost or, you know, getting back to essentially I don't want to pay for the next prescription or, frankly, sharing the prescription. 
right? Someone else has an acre of pain, so hey, I took okay. this and you can take that too, and they've all become doctors in their, you know, in their early formative years. I think that's a huge concern. And look, we, we need to speak to them. We need to make sure they understand. Again, I go back to the conversations I've had with parents. That's generally the age group, right? It's that I'm, I'm wrapping up high school. I'm headed off to college. I have this new independence and freedom, you know, and, and you know, we've all been to college for the most part. And part of going to college is also growing up. And I think, you know, the tragedy here, like I said, is all too often you see that there's abuses that happen in that age range that have lifelong or life-ending implications. Well, again, and I have grandchildren now. One of my grandchildren is in college and another is about to go to college, and it occurs to me that either one of them might have a prescription that had been given to them some time ago legitimately for legitimate pain, or they've seen something in their mother, father, grandmother, grandmother, grandfather's cabinet and say, I'm going off to college, saying goodbye to my parents. I better tuck this away in my back and have it just in case I have some pain. Right. No, and that's certainly possible, right? And again, the, the, the good purpose of trying to get this cleaned up. I'll go back to, you know, look, we, we hear these stories. I have my daughter is in college and my son is headed there. Um, but I hear the stories from him out of high school and, and what's happening with these prescriptions that are left behind. They're showing up with that, that age group. I hear from my daughter the things that are happening in college. So, I, I mean, I, I'm not ignorant. I think none of us should be ignorant to the real concerns that we should have on leftover medication. Well, you and I have a chance here today. I, I have no illusions. Not that many people, 18 to 24, may be listening to this podcast. But what can you say to those young people? How do we motivate these people, particularly in that age group, 18 to 24, maybe 25, to when we think about Take Back Day. So think about it. Take this stuff back. Get rid of it. Again, I think so much of it is this educational process, sitting down with folks and, and making people aware of it, uh, I think is absolutely critical. You, you'll have your grandkids that you can talk to about <laughs> it. I have my kids that I can talk to about it, and I think it's it's having a dialogue. I mean, it... Look, part of the demand problem we have in this country is we've always been somewhat reluctant to talk about drug abuse. Uh, and as parents, we owe it to our kids. Uh, as kids, sometimes we owe it to our parents. Uh, I mean, look, at the, the reverse happens here, uh, which is, you know, people later on in life end up being addicted to these things just as much as, as kids may be. Um, so I think they're, they're open and honest conversations we have to have. This may not reach that 18 to 24-year-old population, but I can guarantee you hopefully someone's parents listening to it right now and they can have the conversation with those people. It's about starting a dialogue and keeping this dialogue running with the American public. Well, as a perhaps small, if not tiny point, let's make the point to someone listening to this. The date is April 28th, Saturday, April 28th, Take Back Day, Take Back Prescription Drug Day. And, um, you know, have a talk with your kids, your grandkids. If you got any stuff around, take it back. Absolutely, sir. The, the economic impact of this, again, I want to keep our focus as much as possible on, on the day and taking back awareness. But something caught my eye this morning. Of, you know, I'm in the news business, so I'm in all news all the time. But it says that there's a new report out saying, and this really stunned me that nearly one million people were out of the workforce in 2015. That's 
last time we had these figures, due to opioid addiction. This is according to a new study. These findings are the latest sign that drug use in the United States is having a significant effect on the economy. There's so many ways this actually touches and impacts on the economy, if you think about it, from whether it's a Medicare perspective and, and who's ultimately paying for a lot of these pharmaceuticals. The insurance industry is paying a lot for these pharmaceuticals, right, that go unused. Uh, and again, it gets back to that, that initial seven-day supply. So do we need to buy 30 on that initial take, that especially when we know they're not being used? Um, the, the, I think the most terrifying figure is, is that you realize you have millions of people that are abusing opioids right now. So, you know, it may impact one million in the workforce. I haven't seen the study that, that you're just referencing, but you have millions of people that are suffering with this problem right now. Well, I'm absorbing just what you said, because again, I'm imagining someone listening to this. And By the way, I'm Dan Rather, and I'm talking to Robert Patterson, who's head of the DEA. Uh, we're here and have this program put together today to emphasize prescription drug take-back day, April 28th on Saturday. But something you just said, you know, I'm imagining someone listening to this and, oh, wait a minute, here's the head of the DEA, and all of a sudden, you know, quote, I don't like uh, Attorney General Sessions, or I don't like the Trump administration. Your point is, whether you like him or not, whether you can agree with him about other policies or not, that there has been a focus on this, a continuing focus from the preceding Obama administration, a focus, a special focus on this. You frankly don't have to like any of us. I think what you have to recognize is the crisis that's rolling out every day in this country. And, and what I get to see and, and the benefit of I get to see is that there is an ongoing effort, um, no matter what, what Democrat, Republican, what you believe, what you don't, there is very much an all-hands-on-deck approach to trying to figure out how to address this issue. Um, look, there's, there's policies throughout all of our lives that we do or don't like. Um, this is one that you, you can't ignore at this point and, and what we have to do to try and fix this. Well, question, I agree with you. There's a national consensus that this opioid is an epidemic and that there are other offshoots of it. it there's a national consensus about that. There's a bipartisan effort, both parties and people in between, who agree that something has to be done. Why haven't we been able to do a better job of containing it? So I, I think, look, we, we all bear some responsibility, industry, uh, government, everybody kind of, I'm not going to say didn't see this coming. There was a lot of people for a lot of years that have been screaming about this. I think that the reality is, is that, you know, as priorities and things that we've looked at have changed. Uh, this became really one of the forefront issues, and it, it comes from the staggering numbers of Americans that are losing their lives to this. Um, it doesn't excuse that in 2015 the number was awful. In 2014, like I said, you go back to 2003, and 25,000 Americans lost their lives to some type of drug overdose. That's too many in 2003. 64,000 in 2016, and what number looks to be a, t a tiny bit higher this year, in 17, as we get the data in, is unexcusable. Um, and like I said, I, I see a commitment, whether I agree with all the, f the, 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 the various components here, I see a commitment across the entire government with all the other agencies right now 
to try and find ways to solve this. The good news is I see folks, again, I bring back the, the American Dental Association. I would hope that the AMA would follow suit, right? They I mean, haven't followed suit so far. The, the only one I have seen was the ADA. Um, but I think these are critical pieces in fixing this issue. If you can bring down the opioid abuser population, um, and law enforcement's going to have to deal with the, the challenges of fentanyl and heroin in the illicit market as it comes across this country, we have to make sure that, that all of our citizens are educated as to the, the presence, the potential presence of fentanyl means that any drug you're taking, whether it's a, a believed to be a prescription pill that may be counterfeit that you didn't get from a doctor, you got from a friend because you just don't know at this point, or a bag of heroin that you're buying on the street in New York, they're all potentially a fatal dose. And that's a decision that you're about to undertake before you use that. You know, I, I again, I go back. I, I was in New York until 1999, and I remember when Colombian heroin became the big rage, right? It was no longer an injectable drug. You could snort it. And the problem was at the time is that it wasn't ultimately the heroin that was killing people in overdoses. It was the adulterant that was placed in it. The adulterant of 2017 or 18 has become fentanyl. We mentioned a national consensus deal with the problem. Question, and you raised, to your knowledge, the American Medical Association has not done what the American Dental Association has done, and that is falling behind this, you know, don't keep this stuff around, there is a great danger, and so forth. I'm going to come back, and you mentioned that in, as part of the national consensus to deal with this, uh, industry, uh, pharmaceutical industry, so-called big pharma, question, when we're trying to get people to take part in take-back day, prescription drug take-back day, these pharmaceutical companies do a tremendous amount of television advertising. Has any one of them agreed to put up television advertising to support Take Back Day? I'm not aware of any. If they would like to come in and have that discussion, I think we would be more than happy to have it. You're uh, available. Uh, we, we are available for that phone call and to sit down with them. I mean, I go back to the, the issue again. We have to work with the industry. The industry has to see what we see. I, I frankly believe that the manufacturers and distributors hear what we're saying, but it's also time for them to take action on their part as well. You know, they, they, they can't. I understand the marketing of these drugs. I mean, you go back to you talk about the advertising power. You know, I can't watch a sporting event and not hear about some type of opioid medication or some kind of medication to interact with opioid problems caused by our problems caused by opioid medication. So, I mean, you get bombarded with this advertising all the day. I give tremendous credit to the advertising out there in the cigarette industry, paid for, I believe, in part by the cigarette industry. Um, you know, and, and I think that's these are critical messages that we get. And being at the table, as you put it, you mentioned the American Medical Association, so far as you know, has not really gotten behind this. Uh, do you know of any doctors who are saying to their patients, and by the way, before you go, let me remind you, if you have any old prescrip any prescription drugs, any old prescription drugs in your medicine cabinet or laying around, take them back. You know, I th I look, I think that by vast majority, the, the, the doctors are out there to always, you know, they, they went into their job the same way a law enforcement person did, right, to do good for their community or, in that case, their patients. 
Um, you know, we've had these conversations with doctors. They understand the importance of essentially cleaning out these cabinets as well. So I think the great doctors out there that, uh, that interact with their patients in that way, um, I, I think would, would be more than happy to, to relay those same messages. And I think they, they recognize the critical importance of it as well. I'm talking with the head of the DEA, Robert Patterson, and our major focus is on Take Back Day, Drug Take Back Day, April 28th on Saturday. But in the course of our conversation, one way or the other, one or both of us have been at least implicitly critical of some aspects of the pharmaceutical industry, the medical association, and various people. Let's talk about journalism and uh, the responsibility of journalists in this. I've been around journalism. Uh, it isn't true I was been here since Trigger was a cult, but I've been doing it a long time. And there is a tendency for those of us in journalism, and I include myself in this, saying, oh, well, another day. I mean, as you say, we have a day to set aside to make sure you change your uh, fire alarm batteries. We have a day for almost everything, and here comes another day, take back drugs day, ho-hum. To, to that, you say what? Well, that ho-hum may be a family member that you save or a friend of your family member that you save, and, and it may seem mundane, and it may seem just like another chore, uh, but like I said, and this this brings me back to that first point that I made, which is we need to stop talking about the big number of overdose deaths in this country and start talking about the stories. And if you sat down with the folks that I've sat down with, and, and I hear that reoccurring story over and over again, if I had just known, if I had just thought, you know, this might be the problem. And like I see, we, we see, you know, if you go back, there was a 2011 study that talked about Again, I'm, I'm going to go back to the opioid abuse issue, that four out of five new heroin users started after using or abusing opioid prescriptions. Now, that number has dropped down. The more recent studies, I think the last one was 57%, but you're still talking about more than half. So the question is, and I think it's the theme of don't be the dealer for Take Back Day, is don't be that person that by leaving this behind in your cabinet essentially enables someone else to become an addict. And I think that's a, a critically important thing. You know, we, we all do mundane every single day. Um, I think this one's important for a lot of different reasons. And quite frankly, the, the person you're helping, most likely, is going to be one of your family members or one of your close friends. You know, we're nearing the end here. What question have I not asked you that I should have asked you? <sighs> Boy, those are always the hard questions to ask, right? I, I mean... Look, for, for all the great work we're doing in this, and, and you know, I, I often tell everybody, and to your point, I think we talked a little bit about the industry, we all have to do better in this space. Um, you know, look, we have DEA, unfortunately, has additional concerns out there. There's certainly a lot of other drug issues. It's not just opioids that, that we're focusing on and trying to undertake all at the same time. Um, this is a critical one for us to deal with in the present as, as we're trying to balance and, and deal with all these other issues. I mean, like I said, I, I wish this was a, a one or two answer solution. Um, it's not. The, the positiveness that I like to try and get out to the general public is, one, we need their help. To the industry, we need their help. To the Hill, we need their help. To the media, we need their help. And the reality is is that I think if we come together and truly focus on this and look at it as a public health emergency, 
we'll actually get to a point of where we can drive these numbers down. The Attorney General has told me personally to drive these numbers down, and I wish it was that easy. Um, but we're certainly committed to doing it. Um, we see prescriptions going in the right directions, right? As, like I said, as we see the states, as we see the ADA, I hope the AMA is having these same conversations that the ADA just came out and had. And, I, and I, my, my instinct would be they, they probably are. Um, and if they're not, then we'll try and shame them into it from, from these sound bites. But the reality is, as we drive these things down, as we get smarter as a nation, we can actually fix this problem. This is not, you know, a problem that has is, is gotten to the point of no return. Um, but we all have to be smarter about it, and we all have to recognize whether it's our roles or our ability to have impact. And back to your point, I mean, talking about this in a local group, talking about it with your kid, going to a, an outreach program to talk about it, if you have a substance abuse problem, not being afraid to try and go get treatment, all of these things play a critical role in what we're trying to do. Let's end this, uh, Mr. Administrator, as we began. Let's go back over what National Prescription Drug Day is, when it is, where it is, and how you get more information about it. First, I actually want to start by thanking you for your time today in this critical conversation. Uh, it's been a pleasure to be here with you. Um, DEA Take Back Day, which you've talked about on April 28th, uh, the site that you need to go to online is deatakeback.com. Um, you plug in your zip code, your local zip code. It'll give you the locations around your residence that you can take it, uh, take any prescription medication back, as we've talked about. Um, feel free to bring not just opioids, but old penicillin, baby aspirin if you have it. We're willing to take all of that and dispose it for you. But the key is to protect your loved ones, to protect your, your family members and your friends, uh, to get medications out of your house, uh, no matter where they may exist, and, and disposed of properly. And you made this point earlier, but it doesn't hurt to reemphasize it. We're not just talking about going through your medicine cabinet or wherever you have your prescription drugs and saying, do I have any opioids? It's any prescription drug you have. Throw the damn thing away. You'd be more than happy to take everything that you want to bring and we'll incinerate it for you. So no questions asked when you get there. If you show up with an old bottle of baby aspirin that you want to dump out to, you can throw it in the same container as everything else. So... Please, I mean, I think that's the, the critical thing. Most of these things, and I go back to the practicality, we all have it, right? We have these medicines, penicillin, and everything else that's sitting in there that we were supposed to take that 10-day supply It's sitting there, get it out of your house, and this is the, the good opportunity to do it. For National Drug Take Back Day, Saturday, April 28th, with the head of the DEA, Robert Patterson, I'm Dan Rather. Thanks for listening. Thank you, sir. Thank you.